0: Let's talk about Creature. The creature. show's called Creature and the title. The title. And, and Mariana put a lot of thought into the title. We, we met in London in November talking about the show. Um, we came up with a few ideas. So tell us through why you landed at Creature and what that word means to you. Um,
1: I was thinking about the word Creature and the fact that it really, on a very basic level, means to create. And that's where the etymology lies in its Latin roots. And I was thinking about the reinvention of bodies and the dismantling or the fracturing or taking oneself apart in order to, re- to reconfigure oneself mm-hmm. against the odds of many societal burdens of having to conform to certain genders, certain roles, certain modes of behavior... And so Creature was a way for me to create an uplifting spirit whereby it would be about inventing something new for oneself. Mm. So it's really about invention and, um, and taking it to a, a fantastical realm mm. through fiction, where fiction isn't just a fanciful idea, but it's something that could
0: be a real hopeful reality. Um, I remember, you know, it's interesting, We um, Oh, of course, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got, I wanted to read, I wanted Mariana to read. So when she came up with this, um, this idea of creature and what that meant, she actually only recently wrote a sort of response to it. Maybe you could talk about that. And you would have seen it when you enter the gallery, the wall text. And I, just at the last moment, was why so I forgot, invited Mariana to read it out to you um, tonight. So let me tell you all the story. <laughs> the story of creature. Creature. Creatura.
1: Crea. Create. A new creature orbits into view, one that has been shattered, broken, and disturbed, but rima- miraculously reconstituted, rediscovered, and refound. As a bad, good girl, I would try to break my own body parts, ramming my knees into corners, slamming encyclopedias onto my bony wrists. Don't mistake me for a depressive youth, I was simply exposing my inner ogre. One day, hanging upside down like a bat, I cut off my arms and in their place grew wings. My hair fell out and out grew thorny antlers. My toes morphed into hooves. They threw me onto the operating table and told me I was a sick girl. I had all the symptoms. Fainting. Nausea. Dizziness. Insomnia. Irritability. Nervousness. Anxiety sexual desire. They cut out bits of me to cure me, exorcising the demon inside with a scalpel. One time, when they were chasing me, I stopped running. I prized the knife from their fingers and cut off my nose and upper lip, grinning through my curtain of blood. They threw me into a fire, and tall flames licked my rancid flesh. For a short moment, I died. Suddenly from my mouth came a sharp a little sharp ecstatic breath I was not dead I was pretending fainting as feigning I felt returning I felt elated and joined by rogues beasts and other creatures we flew unscathed through the still burning fire
0: Amazing thank you And I want to I want to touch on that text and I when you read it to me and Jess we kind of jumped up and down and we're like that's the show that's the show um which is way more interesting and creative than a a sort of curatorial statement from Jess and I um but I recalled when I first saw Mariana's work I um I didn't know Mariana's work um until quite recently and I'd just come to Brisbane and Jess and I were working together and developing the program and I'd had to go to Indonesia um, for a project, a previous commitment and and Jess told me about this artist Mariana and I I was sort of huddled over in this like really poor internet, like there was a terrible internet connection room on my laptop watching Blood in My Milk in a very low res, these five little screens and I just remember being so... Captivate, captivated by the work and taken by it, and in a way that I never expected to be, I think that it somehow through its, you know, its visual richness and and its conceptually and its complexity, it captured all of these really complicated feelings that I had about my um, my body, um, both from like my obsession with how I look and and my appearance, but also my kind of weird health paranoias and um, phobias and it, and it, it's sort of... I think these are complexities that we're all grappling with um, and particularly in this kind of cultural moment um, that we're living in. And you just mentioned then um, the words in that speech, anxiety, nervousness, all of these kind of descriptive words to talk about the state of, the we, of our bodies, that our bodies are in. Um, and it's really hard for me to kind of encapsulate at what moment I felt that in the work... Um, but you often you've ta- spoken about your practice has been about a kind of contamination and spreading like a disease, and I feel that when I see your work. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, I guess the process in creative thing, creating these works, artistic progress, uh, process, and where it came from?
1: With all of the work.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. So overall... um,
1: the first the first thing I'd say around contamination is that um, I don't have. I've always allowed my work to be the governing driver. Like each work couldn't exist without the one before. There's no separate compartmentalized structure where I'm making Mm. one idea and then another separate idea. Every single one has fueled the next. Um, So much so that the characters reappear through several films. um, And I think of them like a virus or a disease spreading that um, both formally through um, you know, demo- showing showing disease on screen or showing this kind of fear mm. of contamination around bodies. And actually, no. The thing I'd say about disease and contamination really is um, that we try to conceal it all the time, and we try to pretend it's not there or it's not part of us. And part of the idea of creature is that creatures can be hybrid or chimerical or um, made of multiple bodies and beings. Mm. Um, And so I'm very interested in microbes and bacterial ways of thinking even, that we are composed of swarms of bacteria. Um, We're always already hybrid, and so the work tries to be borderless in that sense, which takes it into a kind of political realm, I suppose, but it's really about thinking of oneself as not separate from the next species or human or body. Mm. And so contamination is a governing theme in the work mm. Uh, mm. in many, many levels.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really evident in Blood in My Milk, which is the main... And Blood in My
1: Milk as in itself, the title Blood in My Milk is like, you don't really want
0: it there. Mm. <laughs> no, you most certainly not And so that work is obviously the, uh, you know, a really major, probably, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking about half, but the most ambitious work, body of work you've made, do you think? Oh no, I can't maybe not. I okay. like making myself this. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But um, the work was, uh, it's, a new, it's a reasonably new work, but that came from originally, was an evolution, I guess, of four existing single channel narrative uh, films that videos that, um, that Mariana made. And so thinking about this idea of contamination and contagion and spreading like disease, in a way, all those pre existing works that came beforehand. Um, Culminated into Blood in My Milk, and you've spoken a little bit about it being like building a body, Mm -hmm. and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, and the parts.
1: um, The parts of Blood in My Milk used to and still do consist of four separate films called The Udder, um, which is a story around the (sighs) disease mastitis, which udders contract and any farmer will know the threat of mastitis which is also common in breastfeeding women, the, di- the disease of the mammary gland, um, through to blood which was centres on a nose operation which was conducted by Freud and his collaborator um, who uh, cre- came up with a theory that you could cut out parts of the nose to cure women of menstrual problems and masturbation um, which was a real scientific wacky theory um, in the early 1900s that was uh, uh, implemented and uh, one of the parts of this, one of the chapters restages a case of Emma Eckstein who was one of Freud's patients who suffered severe hemorrhages after um, a botched nose operation. Then it goes from, so it goes from the breast or the udder to the nose to the leg and then we look at cyborg cockroaches and the vascular system. So all, all the while we're looking at fluidity. So there's the milk, the blood, the veins, the breast, the nose, the <laughs> leg. And then we go in the final part up to, um, away from the fluid and into bacteria, which was filmed in a bot- Botox um, manufacturing factory. Um, and there we go up to the voice. And so in some ways I think over many years I was trying to achieve or complete some mm-hmm. um slightly warped you know dismantled or disfigured body
0: and it's i mean it goes for 73 minutes work and as you see throughout each um it's it because each film had a very distinctive tone and texture and narrative it sort of all comes together but it's constantly Changing and it, um, the, even the colour palette's changing, but there is this kind of overarching, as you said, I think, sense of body and building of this body. And I think it's interesting to note. and maybe you want to talk about it, that in that film and uh, in that work and the others that you use non-actors. Mm. Yeah, everyone
1: in the work, in all of the works that you'll see, are real people, if that makes sense. <laughs> Everyone's a real person. But uh, they are... So it it started with me researching robotic farms. It documents the the change from manual methods to robotic farming. And Mm. I was curious as to how this was changing our ideas of nature, what we can call natural, what's a natural system. If we've got robots plugged into teats, then what does that mean for our perception of the landscape? And so it's where these sort of biological meets the technological. And so the... uh, the point non-actors. I was making was...
0: Not non-actors. Non-actors,
1: yeah. So um, I went to farms and I chanced upon this... Uh, I actually got lost in the forest. It was very much like a fairy tale. On look, Trying to find the farm, um, I got lost in the forest and had to get picked up by the farmer. And in the car was this nine-year-old Isabel sitting there very quietly, very shy, and I looked at her. <laughs> and... Um, I, I just knew that like she was gonna... In a, and then I met Simon the herdsman, who was profoundly deaf, and all these characters that I met on the farm, I thought, well, this is magic. And I decided, um, because I was interested in making the udder, the protagonist of the film, you don't really see any cows in, in it. You just see the udder, the organ, the productive organ. And then I thought, but udders can't speak. How are we gonna get the udder to speak? And so I, I almost used Isabelle as, a, as, a, as the udder's mouthpiece. And so her nose, through editing and montage and surrealist, nightmarish, associative imagery, we cut from the nose to the teat. The teat gets cut, but there's an implied cutting of the nose, which is a reference to a kind of saint who cut off her nose to save her virtue. There's all these stories of self-mutilation coming through Uh, the point again of being non-actors and the cyborg cockroach inventor went to Texas to film her and her PhD students embroil them into singing a song and um, so but they're really doing their thing and that's the point is that I I meet them on a level where they're doing their job as they would and then I add some pinches of uh,
0: fairy dust (laughs) 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 so yeah fairy dust there's a lot of um, storytelling and fairy tales in your work
1: yeah and, um, and sorry, the, the magic character at the end is a, is a voice surgeon who you hear singing, mm-hmm. who is um, also a trained uh, countertenor. And I met him, and he sings in a church professionally. He, this is Half his job is to be a singer, and a, a beautiful, you hear his voice, and half to be one of the best voice surgeons in, in the UK. And so I said, do you want to put your two halves of your life together? Because he'd never done that. And then we made a medical
0: musical. (laughs) Uh, So, anyway. No. (laughs) Puts ER to shame. Um, I want to touch on two things that you've mentioned there. One, I want to talk about storytelling in your work and the way that you do it in this really non-linear kind of fashion. And, And that's, I guess, what I was trying to articulate at the beginning of the talk, was that when I saw your work and I encountered it, I couldn't quite put my finger on which moment it all clicked into place for me um, because often it is surreal and um, fantastical and um, constantly evolving and changing. So I'm interested in how you employ, I guess, storytelling in that way and and why you're interested in telling stories in a sort of more surreal, abstract, non-linear sort of way.
1: Yeah. I mean, surrealism in a kind of Dada sense was really... Uh, a a movement against fascism you know so it was it came from a need not a kind of just skipping around uh, (laughs) la 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 you know doing what so it comes out of uh, I think a need and a need for a survival through uh, other worse horrors so I think in, in a kind of earnest sense that's why I use it I think I use it because it's that sort of gallows humour <laughs> like where can we go all we can do is let it out and sing <laughs> mm-hmm. so um, part of it comes from deep um, um, a recognition or understanding of the world through having to invent stories and having to survive through uh, the imagination mm-hmm. and that the imagination is the most powerful tool that we've got out there mm-hmm. and so that's um, that's that. And then there's other other sides of it, of working with children, that I, I like to create environments that they can play in, so that the work isn't just for the viewer, it's also for the participants to feel that they can belong to a world on set, that they're not just delivering lines. I create environments and atmospheres. I, I, I you know, I don't... Um, we're not pretending to be inside a nose. We are inside the nose when we're on set. And so the kids take that on. They take that logic on, and we all we all envelop that and then we all go with it and then the magic can happen. And something
0: I've never asked you, which is slightly um, off topic, is these stories, these histories that you're interested in or things that are happening now, how do you find them and what makes... You know, you just kind of stumble across these these stories, these narratives, these people. Is it fairly organic or is you go into deep kind of research or...?
1: Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. Lots Mm -hmm. of it's personal... Lots of it stems from, um, I think, must stem from my bilingual or bi by bi- position by <laughs> position. Okay, start again. Um, not talking about sexuality here. I'm talking about my um, uh, upbringing in Croatia, in Yugos- former Yugoslavia, and in uh, now Croatia. And so, coming from a, a war-stricken place, that when I was young understanding that that was over there with my family and also some of the grim and wonderful stories that come out of that uh, folk- folkloric tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always, you know, way darker than we might think mm-hmm. and it's being given to kids and that's just what you grow up on. So mm-hmm. it's... Um, and then the storytelling... Uh, I've forgotten again... <laughs> I was just. Uh, oh, yeah, I, where do I get the ideas from? Yeah. Then, um, as I said, each work leads to the next. So, before I made anything you've seen here, the piece I just made just before that was a piece called Dog. And have you seen that? No see one's it. seen it. I I, I seen hide that. it. So, this piece was pivotal. Two pieces were pivotal before I got into all of this. One was telling the story about my uh, gra- Croatian grandfather. Um, in 2012, I made a piece documenting my then-alive, now-dead Jewish-Croatian grandfather sitting in a chair, uh, mute, tro- uh, pretty much mute his whole life. And, cu- and told above it was my mum telling the story of him having fainted during the Holocaust when he was supposed to be shot, and he missed the bullet because he fell unconscious at the same time, so the bullet didn't hit him. And... Um, he was put with the dead, and then he woke up, and he didn't think he was in this world. He thought he was in another. And then he managed to escape back to Croatia and uh, survived to tell the tale, but didn't speak. And so I got told this story through my mother's retelling. And then I made this piece of work in which I tried to faint um, a look, and a cut it as a film next to f- alongside footage of him just sitting there, banal, very banal. And... Um, And then that's what three, four years later became Faint with Light, which is the light piece, which was partly inspired by him, but partly inspired by the fact that I was so disappointed with the image of my fainting that um, uh, I I can come on to that later, but I think the point was that that was a revelation and an epiphany for me where I was collaging um, an intervention Mm -hmm. on my part with a documentary truth, mm. or, or, or a story that I'd been given. So there was mm. this... And then the next piece, Dog, I asked a, an actress, an older lady, to play the part of my dog in a dog training centre. And we have a room a like, bit like this with about as many people, all with their dogs, and I come in with this old woman. Um, and we do the training together. And so, again, I was t- taking a situation and I was implanting my intervention. And mm. then after that comes the udder, Mm. And then I started to think about the organ instead of the animal and interspecies and thinking about, like, I don't know, the empathy. Mm. And
0: Mm. it goes on from there. And that's, I guess, a contamination that we talk about with your work. One thing leads to another, even though they might be quite disparate. You know, they might seem quite disparate as an audience member coming in. Yeah. Yeah. but that is a good chance to talk about faint with light, which is the sculptural the light sculpture in the second gallery, which for me so i hadn't i hadn 't seen it until you know in the last few days because i 'd only seen documentation of it of course but i even I remember seeing that the documentation and it being very affecting it really affected me and um, in a very visceral um, sense it 's a real experience to be in that work um, and Mariana, you touched on um, on your grandfather's story and how um, that experience, that traumatic um, story of survival and how that sort of led you to think about the work. And I'm kind of interested in its evolution, um, not only sculpturally, um, but formally, but also conceptually um, talking about hysteria in women and that performance.
1: Yeah, so there's a painting by Andre Andre Bruyere, if I pronounce his name correctly, painted in 1857, which is a image of um, Charcot, the doctor uh, um, uh, who was working in the hospital Salpetriere, and he would um, host these um, s- hysteria sessions, if you like, and women would. There's the painting documents of women swooning fainting in front of a a group of male doctors all staring at her. And so this was considered to be a demonstration of hysteria, a proof that it existed through the symptoms that were noted at the time as being dizziness, nausea, fainting, etc., sexual desire, masturbation, blah, blah, blah. And so fainting was one of the key five main symptoms of hysteria. So if a person fainted, they were deemed hysterical. And so I was super interested in... um, hoisting that past up to a contemporary present where um, I don't think the problem's quite gone away. And um, I I wanted to um, negate or... D- dismantle this image of the woman falling daintily to the floor like a flower, which is often seen in silent movies, often when a male walks into a room and the woman's so overwhelmed with emotion that she collapses in a heap. And I um, don't really like that image, and I wanted to do something that would convey an internal spirit of what was actually going on, Mm. which is this um, accidental, unconscious, guttural howl which um, resembles death and sex quite closely. And um, I have no recollection of it, and the only way I can um, know about it is through technology and recording it. Mm. Um, And so the piece evolved out of uh, honing in on the audio and not the image, and then the image is an anti-image. The image is a a, a Mm. piercing upon the viewer's retina, so blinding. That it's um, almost unbearable, but mm. still, uh, I won't speak for you all. I mean.
0: Mm. Mm. And we've spoken about the needle and the larynx being a sort of sibling to that work, even though it's a very different work. And again, for those of you who haven't seen it or don't know what work I'm referring to, it's um, a, a video, a work in the first gallery of Mariana receiving a Botox injection in her throat which lowers her voice and it's her talking through that experience um, with the surgeon in the room. Why? What is it about those works that you see as them being siblings? And that's my first question.
1: Um, simple question is that I made them next to each other.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, so they were like born side by side. But one after the other, 2016... Um, and like my work is sort of a diary because it's the only way I can know what where the hell I've been in the world, and it, it it's very accurate sort of representation of my mental state at the time. Um, but the needle in the larynx came soon after faint with light. Faint with light, I think, had been stewing for a good four years, and probably since I was born. It was it's my um, core. It's like the mother work. That's what I call it. It's it's like it, in Alien. It's like the the mother is the queen alien, mm. um, but and then fa- Neil and the Larynx came as a consequence of having made it because I was interested in the uh, um, these acts of disappearance and mm-hmm. the way that I um, was reading a lot about like fainting. Where where did I, where do you go when you faint? Can it be considered outside of a language of hysteria and negativity? Could it be some sort of rapture or empowerment or a place that you go that is like away from the stuff out there uh, like a place to go uh, away and also I was thinking about like take, taking away something that's so like identifiable and signature a signature property being one's voice that um, you learn uh you know from birth your mother learns the call and you, you identify you know in milliseconds whether someone's voice is theirs or not and to take that away was more broadly uh speaking to me, of, uh, again, this shared communion intermingling that I'm interested in, of um, taking away this individua- individualized individuation, mm. I don't know, mincing my words, but indi- like this sense that we have to be I and me always, mm. what if we took something away that was that property and maybe started to collapse our own boundaries of who we thought we were, and so that's why I made
0: that work. And I think that we've spoken a bit about in that work the needle and the larynx, sort of the role of voice in gender and I think both of the works um, touch on uh, positions ascribed to women perhaps Mm. or the ways in which femininity is defined. Um, Yeah, I mean the Margaret Thatcher
1: is a really good case because she had elocution lessons when um, she was the Prime Minister to um, lower the pitch of her voice and also to create a kind of gravitas around her, which was uh, aiming to gain power. And what's funny is that in this work, I, my voice was so weak to the point of hoarseness for several days. And then I lived with this quite uncomfortable, shitty... <laughs> like, like, you know, it wasn't, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a Thatcher voice, put it that way. Mm. It, was a, <laughs> um, it was an experiment. I was using myself as a guinea pig, and I wasn't so concerned with whether I would sound... <laughs> I wasn't trying I wasn't after a growl I was after so um, it comes in it comes with all of these really problematic ideas also the condition that in, that's mentioned in the film called pubiphonia is a condition um, in which men think mm-hmm. their voices are too high um, and so they Try to make it lower through this injection as a temporary measure and then can go for a more invasive permanent procedure. And so I found that really haunting and um, really much more about our perception and societal expectations of what one is meant to sound like or look like or be. So I wanted to probe the categories of boxes that we find ourselves in and just (laughs) push it over. Keep probing.
0: And your work certainly does that. And just to talk about both those works as well, about your position in them and pushing your body physically. Mm. Um, I mean, both of those um, works, you've really pushed yourself into a, a different state or disappearance in a way. And maybe you could just touch on that about the importance of you pushing your body in those works and what that kind of spoke to or meant to you. Um. I often get
1: asked why, how, what did your parents think, what the hell's going on with your brain, um, who are you? <laughs> and um, honestly, I think the behind the scenes is much more difficult than the on screen uh, physical endurance, actually. The, the entire practice is an embodied one. Mm. Um, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, and it has been for many, many years, and so I don't see this as a um, a particularly grueling act. Um, the procedure, so I do, I do slightly dif, uh, defy, in a way, what you're saying, because I, I think. I, I researched. I hired a medic. I had oxygen. I had bean bags. I had a very, very, very expert surgeon. Um, I had a producer and a really skilled people around me. So part of it is um, just to emphasise that I'm also a filmmaker and an artist. Therefore, I am also allowed to exaggerate and lie. Um, that like that is filmed at a really high frame rate and it, it lengthens a five minute procedure into one that's about tw- fifteen twenty minutes long.
0: Mm. And
1: so um, it's. Uh, I've been I've been working hopefully on my skill my you know the ability to actually make an image and combine that with sound and create an atmosphere in a room and it's not just that I'm standing on a thing and just like slitting my wrist you know it's not yeah. it's not that it's just not that it's really about storytelling and trying to um like work to convey um, my point in the most communicative way possible and mm. that involves sometimes putting my, using my body as a material.
0: Mm. Um, I?
1: It's, a means, it's like a palette except that the body has a limit so it's like a camera or a paint palette or a sculpture with their tools that my body happens to be one of the materials I use in amongst many others mm-hmm.